0: Turn to the book of Psalms this morning. Trust you've had a blessed week. Just to thank everyone for their labors last week. Tremendous Resurrection Sunday here at Grace. And by the way, it was a record weekend attendance for us for a Resurrection weekend. You can get happy about that if you'd like. But let me officially say we are officially out of space which means we officially need to get this building finished next door because we officially need those official seats for our official resurrection service in 2014. Someone say amen to that. All right. Psalm 103, I want to give you some additional thoughts this morning by way of introduction about the cross. You know, I, I trust that Resurrection Week, Resurrection Sunday is a, are not the only moments During your year that you ruminate on this cross. Because once again, it is the beginning. It's the middle and the end of everything that happens for you as a believer. And Psalm 103, I believe, highlights this. And this is a passage that you know well. Psalm 103, verse 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases. Say all. All. Who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, and satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. (laughs) Forget not all his benefits. You know, you and I have gadgets around our house that we've never read the instruction manual for. Geek check. How many of you here have read the manual to your DVD player? It's a special healing line for you after the service. All right. You're one step away from a pocket protector, let me just tell you. But there are most of us have most of us have things in our home, whether it's our television, our our DVDs, maybe even our automobile, that there are things that these devices do that I'm sure we've never discovered because we've never stepped back, read the instruction manual and said, wow, you mean it would do this? I did not know that. I mean, I, this, this amazing thing that I've purchased and, you know, after only 17 more payments I'm going to own, and that's just a DVD player. It's a really nice DVD player. That it will do all of these things. I had no idea all these benefits existed. And yet many times I believe that as we ponder this cross, as we consider this gospel, there are benefits here that we need to dive down and dig into just a little bit deeper. And realize that this gospel is a full feature gospel. It does a whole lot more than just rescue you from hell. That there are things now that come to us every day. Forgiveness. Who forgets, who forgives all our sins? Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins, Christ died, canceled the written code of the law. Healing. Isaiah 53, by his what? His stripes. We are healed. You know this. Redemption, Galatians 3. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Meaning that every promise given to Abraham, now because of the redemptive work of Christ, it all comes to you. That whatever Abraham got, you get. By means of this covenant and then love and compassion, John 3, 16, God loved, God gave all ongoing benefits of the cross. And we see that this cross brought health to us. We were all sick. We were all sick in such a way that there was nothing that the CDC in Atlanta could find a cure for all the, all the medical research in the world could not help this sin sickness. Because the end result, Scripture says, that sin, when fully conceived, gives birth to death. We were all sin sick unto death. And yet now, health flows to you and I. John writes, dear friend, I pray that you might enjoy, what? Good health. And that all may go well with you. And yet I've been pondering over these past few weeks that often the pursuit of health and the pursuit of happiness are not parallel tracks. Let me give you an example. Many of you know that I did not hone this accent living here in the D.C. area. It was slow cooked in the south for many years. Like the food down there. And most of the food down there, as you know, as you've heard me pontificate upon before. And, and I'll even give a little quasi-worship to is The food, food from the South, it's all brown, including the vegetables. The meat is fried. The bread, the hush puppies are brown. And they're fried. Even the bread is fried in the South. The vegetables, because they're all cooked with bacon, grease, and sugar, they're brown. It's all brown food in the South. And so now that one gets older and, you know, you hit certain ages, whether it's 40 or 50... And all of a sudden now, metabolism just, just hits the brake. And you realize, I can't, even, I can't even go by Popeye's and smell anymore. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if I even smell fried food, I gain five pounds. And so in a quest to try to stay healthy, I'm beginning to realize this isn't the happiest thing for me. My wife's idea of cooking a vegetable is to run it under hot water for a moment. <laughs> Would you like your broccoli raw or cooked? <laughs> Vegetables are supposed to be crunchy. Fried chicken is supposed to be crunchy. And so, but I realized that in this quest of trying to get healthy and maintain this health is that it's not always the concurrent reality with being happy about it. Now, I know some of you can go to the gym and the endorphins kick in and you get real happy about your gym moment. God bless you. You need deliverance. And there will be a line for you as well. Pastor Brett's not here today. I can get away with this. It's why you need a a skinny pastor and a chunky pastor. You know, we got both kinds here, country and western. And so I'm sure Pastor Brett can go in there and he can get real happy working off his 800 calories. Oh, yeah. I mean, I get on mine, it's just like 80 calories. You know, I just got like a bite of donut I can work off. But the health and the happy... Are you happy enough? And we look around us today, and have you ever looked around and thought, everybody's happier than I am. I mean, you look at the television and all these smiling people, they all seem to be happy. They buy something, they get happy. Everybody's grinning. You never see anybody on a commercial unhappy about their purchase. And you you just get this, this, this sense of, well, what's wrong with me? And it's, as believers, oh, this, this comparison becomes even more acute. Oh, my gosh, you know, Jesus died for my sins. I'm not going to hell, you know, and I should be grateful. You know, it's just like, come on, you know, get your praise on. What's really, you know? And you're doing everything that you know what to do, and yet still there's just kind of this, eh, I'm just not sure I'm really, really happy. And happy in our country has literally become its own industry, its own industry. And In the 1990s, we saw the convergence of, of two things. First of all, there was a lot of research, neuroscience, as to why people had certain disorders, if you wish, or, or why people had issues of depression or anxiety. But there hadn't been a lot of study up to that period of time on the other side of that coin of what makes people happy, what, what part of the brain gets, gets ignited when folks get happy. And so there were, there were many discoveries coming out around this period of time about the brain activity and underlying well-being, and this was convergent with an emergence of a very uh, st- a stream of positive psychology, the Tony Robbins on steroids, if you wish. You know, if you can thunk it, you can have it. You can be anything, success. And so these two things sort of married and came together, and what was formed really became almost a happiness industry. Ed and Robert Diener, in a book entitled Rethinking Happiness, although some 85% of Americans say they're pretty happy, the happiness industry, their term, Sends the insistent message that moderate levels of well-being aren't enough. Not only can we all be happier, but we practically have a duty to do so. You ever been the only one in the room that just didn't... She didn't want to slap somebody. My roommate in college was wired very, very much like I, I was. We both... Artistic type, melancholy kind of guys. And we both came into salvation about the same time. But about two years later, he kind of fell away. And I, and, and I said, what, what's going on? He said, I just, I, I, can't, I can't do this Christian thing. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just can't do the happy thing all the time. He said, I'm so tired of going into meetings and, you know, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And, you know, the- <laughs> he said, I, I, I just, it just I, I, can't, I can't do it. I just can't be happy all the time. And I thought to myself, wow, this was quite a while ago, at least 10 years ago when I was a college freshman. (laughs) (laughs) Eleanor Roosevelt made this statement that happiness is not a goal. It is a byproduct. Happiness is not a goal. It is a byproduct. But then that begs an important question then, a byproduct of what? I mean, if if the goal then is not just to try to achieve happiness, regardless of what the culture around us tells us that we should be doing, then what is as a byproduct of what? And I want to look at that this morning for a few moments. And so let me give you five happy thoughts to talk about that statement. The first is what I call the heresy of happy. The heresy of happy. We have a document that gets referenced quite a bit in our culture that talks about life, liberty, and the... of happiness. Now, I think what's important about that statement and about that document is that that word pursuit does not have inherent in it anywhere a guarantee. Uh Uh-oh. A guarantee of happiness. And yet the outworking of this concept has been disastrous, I believe, both in the world and in the church. That somehow happiness has become an entitlement. Okay? I'm an American. It's in the founding fathers decided that I should be happy. They didn't guarantee your happiness. All they said is that you can pursue the same. Likewise, coming into salvation coming in, coming into the kingdom of God, coming into the kingdom of heaven. It's not about you being happy all the time. Happy is not the goal. And yet when we come into this entitlement mentality, well, I should be happy and I'm not happy. Therefore, I'm victimized by my unhappiness. Uh-oh. Psalm 10, 6, he says to himself, Nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. You say, wow, I, where is that? I didn't know that was in the Bible. So, But let's talk about who this verse is referencing. It's not an American. It's not a man of great faith. It's Scripture says the wicked. This is how the wicked thinks. That nothing will shake me and I'll always be happy and never have trouble. And yet, we wonder, am I happy enough? If I'm not, then what, what can I do about it? What kind of change do I need to exact around my life in order to get happier? You know, baby, I could be a lot happier. You know, I, I, there's, there's got to be, there's, there's got to be another group of, another job, another gathering of people. There's got to be something out there whereby which I can be happier. For some, maybe we admire, we desire, we acquire. Come on, we're good capitalists. Maybe if I can just, just get hold of something else, a new something. I mean, that's what the man on the television told me. That if I bought this new Z28, that the male pattern baldness would reverse itself. (laughs) Happiness. You see, number two, often it's the lack of happiness that brings us into deeper places with God. You know, I don't know that any of us walked into salvation thinking, okay, yeah, life is good. Feel good, money in my pocket, life is great. Let me just get me some Jesus and I'll be on this thing. I don't think that Jesus was ever an add-on in a happy moment. I think most of us had come to the end of something. We'd come to the end of ourself. And we just realized, you know what? I don't like my life much. I'm in pain. I need something different than what I'm doing. It was most of us came. Most of us came to salvation from a place of being deeply what? Unhappy. Guess what? A sovereign God used that. And ladies and gentlemen, if God would use that to draw you to himself initially, do you not think? That he will use that as well to continue to draw you deeper into himself. And yet we come to a moment like that, and the next thing you know, you know, we get our we get our Pentecostal on. When I bind I loose, I loose that on heaven in Jesus' name. And, and so we get our we get our our Pentecost on, <laughs> thinking that we can somehow bind loose or cast out whatever this thing is that's temporarily making us happy, unhappy, and God is saying, yo, hey, foo, yo, I did that. I'm trying to get your attention. King Hezekiah of Judah dying. Doctors have given up on him, and he prays. And Isaiah comes and prophesies to him, and God gives him 15 additional years on his life. Not a bad deal. And we see Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 38, beginning in verse 15. What can I say? He's spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years. Why? Because of this anguish of my soul. Wow. Wow. Lord, by such things men live and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to help. You let me live. It was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Uh-oh. Tell me that's not in my Bible too. Wow. It was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You put all my sins behind your back. For the grave can't praise you. Death can't sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. But the living, the living, they praise you. As I'm doing today, fathers tell their children about your faithfulness. And whether we like it or not, saints, listen to me. It's often our pain and our unhappiness that draws us closer to God. God knows this. Scripture's rife with all of these examples. Look at the book of Psalms. 150 chapters of a whiny man. I'm serious. I mean, this is King David. Yeah, David, the man. Man after God's own heart, warrior, musician. I got all that. But I mean, we get a glimpse in the guys, Jerry, look after me again. Oh, God. I mean, We got kind of a peek into the man's personal life here. And it's just like, come on, get man up. And yet, we see something here of the the, the inscripturation of the agony of this man's soul. And yet it was through much of this agony that what? He became a man after God's own heart. There's certain things that get, get carved out in our life through pain, through discomfort, through unhappiness, that nothing else will make such a chasm for God to be filled. Consider Job's trials for a moment. I mean, here's Job just minding his own business. Satan showing up with the angels and chatting with God. Yo, hey, let's mess with Job. Job's wife says, man, why are you holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job says, woman, it's always bad when a husband starts that way. It's going to be bad for the husband later. Woman, you are talking foolish. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in this, Job didn't sin in what he said. And this is just chapter 2. It was just cranking up for Job at this point. Wow. Even Jesus, consider the suffering of His humanity. And Jesus suffered every day He was here in the limitations of human flesh. Not just in the last week of His life, but every moment He was here, separated from the glory of heaven, He suffered. And yet it says in Hebrews, But for the joy set before Him, He did what? He endured the cross. He exchanged something. Happiness for joy, which is my third point. See, many times we think happy is what we're really after when what we really want is the deeper thing called joy. See, happy is sort of the external outworking and manifestation, but joy, do you realize you can be joyful and not be happy? See, huh? You can be joyful knowing that you are in the center of God's will and yet not necessarily be happy about what it looks like and feels like in that moment. I don't think Jesus was real happy about crucifixion. But he was joyful that the purposes of the Father were being accomplished. Hmm. Matthew 4, Satan coming to Jesus. After this moment, he's... he's Going out into the desert, he's tempted, and and Satan comes at him with everything. Man, just speak to this stone, let it become bread. You can have all of this. I mean, everything a man would want, provision, power, things that would make a man happy, and yet Jesus realized this would all be temporal. He said, I'm after something eternal here. Discipline is not a happy moment. You know, whether it's for the parent or the child, that moment of discipline is never happy. I mean, oh, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. I always wanted to say, fine, give me the switch. (laughs) Let's just, let's just, but I, I knew better. Because that's when dads had those old 1960s one-inch belts. Remember those? Uh, and they come, zip! A few weeks ago, my perfect grandchildren <laughs> were at my house. My daughter was there, and, but the father was not in the moment. And it's amazing what little boys do and don't do when their dads aren't around. And so the oldest one was smarting off as his mother. Smarting off. And I didn't really have a lot of time to think about it. Now, I know that this is a very genteel culture here. But I come from the south. I snatched him up. <laughs> now, now, listen, I don't believe in child abuse, please. <laughs> but I snatched him up. And all he knew was, and, I, and I, I snatched him, he was standing at the kitchen counter, and I came up behind him kind of stealth-like. I snatched him up with my left hand so his feet were kind of dangling. And I, then I took my free right hand and did what God intended for it to do in a moment like this. He couldn't even breathe. He was a, He couldn't inhale, he couldn't exhale. Life just stopped for a moment. Because everything that he knew to be true, like the earth being round, ended because it's like his granddaddy, the purveyor of donuts and toys. (laughs) A free pass every time. His his dad. Dad? He can call me dirt long as he calls me. His dad had just stepped into the role of the authority feet dangling and you see God will do that to you and I too and it's very much like my grandson then all the air gets sucked out of our world. <gasps> it's not what I knew about God you know and we're there and God's got us and our feet are dangling that's why it says over in Hebrews 12 to endure hardship because if you're never disciplined scripture says that you're illegitimate And yet it's never pleasant for a moment. I I can't say that I was happy about it. Certainly my grandson was not happy about it. The younger grandson was like. (laughs) Even my wife and my daughter were like. Never seen this before. And yet we get surprised many times when God disciplines us. It's like, God, this is, this is not making me happy. it's making you healthy. Which is my fourth point. God will violate your healthy. You're happy to get you healthy. And He'll happily do it. Parents, we do it all the time. Your children... Coming 10 minutes before every meal, every meal, the throes of starvation finally hit your children. And with the last of their strength, they come into the kitchen. I'm hungry. I'm dying. I need food. I need a snack. Now, mothers have this really aggravating concept of snack. You can have some fruit. Have some fruit. The child is thinking a bag of Cheetos at that moment. You know what I'm saying? Cheetos. And so, but in that, but in the last breath, coming, I'm hungry. And you realize that if you left those children to their own culinary and nutritional whims, they would not be healthy. Correct. I mean, their idea of variety and diet would be McDonald's to Burger King to Taco Bell back to McDonald's. The holy trinity of food. I mean, that's what they would understand. And they they would not be healthy. But obedience and service is not intended to make us happy. It's intended to make us healthy. Lordship is not about happy. It's about healthy. Healthy. I didn't ask you to be happy about these commands. But if you do these commands, there is health that will flow through your life. Even disciple making. Aren't you amazed at how people many times will gamble on hell in order not to just temporarily cut across their happy? It's an amazing thing. Well, let me talk to you about the free offer of salvation. Yeah, what have I got to give up? What have I got to give up? Well, no, I'm I'm, I'm really happy where I am. So you would rather be happy and risk hell. Yep. Okay. (laughs) It's amazing, though, how deep this runs in us. And then lastly, what is the goal? Is it happy or is it really healthy? Julia Baird, writing in Newsweek in 2009, made this statement. The most inspiring people are those least obsessed with their own happiness. Especially those who stride confidently across the globe to create, evoke, change, or rest from life what they will. You know, I've been pondering, what is is the real definition of biblical love? Because somewhere I know that it's there that one will find help. And I know that the answer is much more complex than this, but I've really reduced it to one thing. It's giving oneself away. I don't think it's really a whole lot more complicated than that. You see, the happiness doctrine places its sole emphasis on what? Me. Does this make me happy? And yet, greater love, Scripture says, has this, that man give his life for his friends. Even in 1 Corinthians 14, in the discourse on spiritual gifts, Paul is writing, yes, speak in tongues, it's great, it edifies you, but I would rather you prophesy. Why? Because then the whole church can be what? Edified. He goes on and says, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. You see, healthy things both produce and reproduce. You're going to reproduce after what you are. No parent's ever look down and says, boy, that boy's ugly. It's a little bit of an indictment there, Daddy. No parent's ever had an ugly child. That's the reality. But we're going to reproduce after what we are. And we're going to reproduce health or we're going to reproduce something that's not healthy. One or the other. Ezekiel 47 speaks of this river that flows from the altar, from the throne. It says trees grow on each side of that thing. And it says it never never casts its fruit, meaning that the fruit is always there and the leaves are there for healing. Fruitfulness always places its emphasis on others. You see, there's no benefit to the tree to produce fruit it's for those that come and eat from it who are benefited. See, when you and I move from just an emphasis on happiness to really being healthy, that we show ourselves to be disciples by producing much fruit so that people can eat from our life, so there's a healthy production and reproduction coming from us, then our entire emphasis on how life works, it changes. You see, Ecclesiastes 3:12 sums it up this way: "I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live." Wow. Being happy, doing good. And that doing good always has an outworking, an outworking. Where are you this morning? Are you happy? Are you healthy? I believe that both are available to us because of what Christ has done for us. But it begins with getting primary relationships right in our lives, our families, friends, how it works out here in this thing called the church, and then with Him.